0: This is not only exciting because it's Rock to City time, uh, which we love at the church, but it's also exciting because it's a, a major milestone, in that this being 2020 is now the 10th anniversary of the Rock to City Initiative, which it's incredible. It's always incredible to come to any anniversary that's significant. I think 10 years is something we're celebrating, a whole decade of Rock to City, which) uh, is huge. I mean, we were looking back at some of the things accomplished since that vision and that heart. And you saw some of the archival footage when I had no tattoos and was wearing a tie. So things have indeed changed. Uh, but since that time, uh, we have been able to, as a church, serve 61,477 hours in cities. Uh, We have been able to give just under $3 million to our outreach partners that are both serving internationally, nationally, and locally. Uh, We are on track by the end of this year to have given away $3.3 million. So we're just about to cross that uh, threshold. It's an incredible thing because I remember when it all began. It all began with us studying the book of Nehemiah, which we're going to do today in just a moment. And born out of that study, looking into this book of the Bible, was the desire, and I would even just say it explicitly, the call of God for us as a church to not just teach the Bible, but to live it out in a very practical, tangible, systematic way of serving in the city. And at the time, just a few locations. Now, as, as we've grown, it's, it's just amazing to see Rock the City happening. Well, last year it was in four states, and now that we're able to do it, uh, as we are today, really, one church in 13 locations has given way, as we said, to one church in 3,000 locations. And we're praying and believing that, that uh, just as the 2020 benchmark looks back at the 2010 and goes, wow, it's inc- incredible that tiny seed of a vision has grown into this. And even now, as we come to this benchmark, I'm just saying, God, what could it look like by 2030? What could it look like as we come to a place where I look forward to the day when I'm able to look into the camera and speak to all of you and say, praise God, we've given $30 million to outreach. Praise God that, that we have, we've seen 300,000 hours. And then on and on from there, it can exponentially grow. But it's an incredible thing, because Nehemiah, which is where this all came from, uh, along with Ezra and Esther, really, to me, help us as a church to understand how we can help our cities flourish. And so in that respect, the, the, the bright tie-dye of our shirts, our Rock This City shirts, all really do speak of the vision, which is to see uh, the flourishing of the city where God has called us to live be not just something that happens in our hearts and in our community, but also in the very city that we live in. You see, Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther are three books that all take place simultaneously and all show different aspects of the same thing. In these three books, we find much like we do in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three different camera angles on the same period of time. Now, if you have in your Bible turned to the book of Nehemiah, which you you should if you have one, uh, you'll notice that it takes place before the book of Psalms. But actually, if we're speaking chronologically, Esther, Nehemiah, and Ezra all should be the last books of the Bible. Because these events that we're reading about are after the Psalms, after the prophets. In fact, they are the final thing to take place in the Old Testament before the 400 silent years. And the next thing to take place is the angelic announcement of Christmas that we find in the beginning of the Gospels. And so these three stories all talk about how we can fight for flourishing for others, fight for a city, fight for a people to flourish. And they do so in different ways that are not meant to be used exclusively, but, but, but really, the three are to be blended together. Last week, we looked to Esther, and the spirit of Esther in a city will cause us to speak up, to speak up for those who are uh, being ex- exploited, to speak up for those who are being neglected, to speak up for those who are being oppressed, to speak up for justice, that we're not to argue about whether or not we have privilege, but we are to leverage our privilege for those who don't have it, and to do so against any injustice that we see. Ray Bakke, in his book, Theology as Big as a City, puts it this way, Esther gives us permission to reflect on our call to serve God within the matrix of a modern, secular, or oppressive system to confront evil and work for justice. Now this week, we're going to see Nehemiah tell us the same thing, but in a different way. He's going to tell us not speak up. He's going to tell us to rise up, to rise up and build, to rise up and care for the practical needs of the city. The first year, 10 years ago, we began. I went to the mayor of the broadcast city that we broadcast from and just ask, how can we help? How can we serve? I did the same thing again this year. How can we come alongside what you're doing? You're leading. We we, we thank God for those who lead in political ways. We pray for them, though we don't always agree with anything that an elected official is doing. But we pray for them. We seek to serve under that authority. We care for our first responders. We care for our firefighters, our police officers. Uh, we, we, we believe, even in times when we, we believe there needs to be reform in the system and change in policy, even when we, we know there is corruption that takes place and evil that we see, we still want to serve. We still want to pray for. Just about every year of Rock the City in this last decade, our family has at some point done something to serve paramedics, done something to serve our our police officers. And we're grateful for those who put their lives on the line for us every single day, and oftentimes for much too little pay. So Nehemiah is talking about sewage and and talking about graffiti removal. Nehemiah is going to help us to care for food being given to the poor, care for homelessness, care for the, the physical, functional things that it takes for a city to thrive, for a city to flourish, and for us all to do what we can to help that happen. Spoiler alert if you come back next week it's Father's Day by the way and I hope you'll be here as we talk about from Ezra how spiritual formation is a is a necessary part of flourishing what what is it uh, help if we care to, enough to speak up, and we care enough to rise up, but on the inside, on the eternal unseen level, if we're not ministering to people with evangelism, if we're not caring enough to share the gospel, if we don't care enough that the, the, those who have received the gospel can be grown through discipleship relationships, be put into groups, into community, into, and a thrive iron sharpening iron. So, all of these things Ezra speaks to, and, and specifically with a bend of how that starts in the home, starts from the father, starts from the, from, from the, from the level of, of mom and dad, and, and what that looks like in a home as it spreads out. So, I hope you'll be here with us next weekend. But the The tragic reality is oftentimes, in the church, we focus only on that Ezra ministry. You can throw a stone and hit a church, so I don't recommend you throw a stone and hit a church, and find one that'll give you a Bible study, and find one that'll tell you uh, the gospel. Sadly, oftentimes, it's not the gospel and the social justice and the practical needs. Or sometimes you'll find a church focusing only on social justice and focusing or, or focusing only on the physical needs, but not actually addressing spiritual formation. The power is when they're all present together. And, and, and some churches and some pastors are going to find it easier because of their bend, because of the, the, the specific way they're wired to do one of the three. But what I'm realizing, it's, it's really that power of the harmony of all these things working together. That it's not either or, it's both and. That we're going to preach the gospel and preach the cross and present Jesus. And, and, and I, you know, I, I stand on the track record of, of now not only 10 years of us fighting for these physical things, this Nehemiah ministry, but also years and years and years of Bible teaching. And you know what? Last weekend, if it made some of you uncomfortable, that's OK. Because I'm finding and flexing a new muscle as I'm seeing in scripture the need for me to speak up and and to do so in the spirit of Esther as well. And so all of these things blending together are what we see in this period of time where a fight was done for other people to flourish. A fight was done for a city to thrive. To focus on the spiritual needs and neglect the other two is what the Bible holds in very low regard. From the Old Testament to the New, Amos 5, God speaking. This is strong language. I hate, I despise your feast days. I don't savor your sacred assemblies. Oh, great, he says, you're offering me offerings and grain offerings. I will not accept them, nor will I regard them. Why, 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 why? Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your instruments. Why? He says, let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. He's going, don't do the Ezra thing every single week and, 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 and bore me with your Bible studies when you don't raise your voice for the oppressed. You need the Esther ministry. But then James says, James chapter 2, my dear brothers and sisters, what good is it if someone claims to have faith but demonstrates no good works to prove it? How could this kind of faith save anyone? For example, if a brother or sister in the faith is poorly clothed and hungry, and you leave them saying, goodbye, I hope you stay warm and have plenty to eat, But don't provide them with even a cup of soup. What good is your faith? So then faith that doesn't involve action is phony. So what is he saying? He's saying it's not enough to to have the Ezra and the, the Esther ministry if you don't have that Nehemiah ministry, if you're not doing the spiritual and the physical, the holistic aspect of the church is what we're talking about. All these things need to be necessary. All right, now, I just want to kind of give you a little bit of an overview of Nehemiah. I can't do this whole book in a, in a single talk, but I just want to, for a few minutes, as we begin this week of us all hopefully serving in our cities through the outreach initiatives, which will propel us into a whole nother year of it, as in our small groups and, and, and people all across the church serving their city as a way of life week in and week out, I just want to encourage you and cast some vision around the book of Nehemiah. Um, You may know that 586 BC, the city of Jerusalem was sacked and laid waste by the armies of Babylon. And many in the city were taken away captive to live in Babylon. And 141 years goes by. And in that time, two different attempts were made to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And neither of them were unsuccessful. And as we open up to Nehemiah 1-1, we're seeing Nehemiah informed that the second of those two attempts had come to nothing. There had been groups that had tried to do what he's going to do in a minute, and he's finding out it was not fruitful. Look at what it says. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the midst of in the citadel of Susa. Han and I, hey, if you're like a Bible expert and you know that I'm saying every word wrong, that's awesome. Good for you. Barely graduated high school. Han and I, one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So he's basically saying, how's it going? How's it going? How's the rebuilding going? They said to me, "Those those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven." Then four months goes by. There's a four-month gap while he's waiting and praying, weeping and praying, crying out to God and praying, but still just showing up for work and doing his job. Then it says, chapter 2, verse 1, in the month of Nisan, it's a vehicle. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king, because Nehemiah was a cup bearer. That means he would take a tiny sip of the king's drink, and if Nehemiah didn't die, the king would be able to drink it and know that it wasn't poison. No one had tried to take him out, which meant that Nehemiah's job had a level of stress to it. But if all was well, he got to drink some really expensive booze. I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I, he says, was very much afraid. I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad? When the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire, the king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried, so I can rebuild it. What do we see in this initial passage? We see that that to see a city flourish takes tension. And the first example of this tension is the tension between emotion and action. Emotion and action. The first couple of verses tells us that Nehemiah was sad and brokenhearted. He sat down and wept and spent four months doing that. But he didn't just care. He didn't just feel bad. You know, We see some things on the news. We see our city sometimes in ruins in, in one way or another. And we sometimes just feel bad. And, man, I feel terrible. I, someone should do something about that. But that's not where he stopped. That's where he started. The emotion was mixed with action. Action number one, he prayed. He prayed. And you can do more after you pray, but you can't do anything more until you pray. Nehemiah knew that prayer moves the heart and moves the hand of God. Prayer is action. Prayer is doing something. And in that prayer, he basically said to God, "What we should all say, here am I, send me. Because many times when we're praying for God to do something, God, save my neighbor. God, encourage that person. God, touch our world. God's up there going, the answer is yes, you get to work. Yeah. The answer, your prayer has been answered. And you are the answer now to your own prayer. And Nehemiah sensed that. And that's why he spoke up. He, in front of the king that day, he said, uh, I'd like to go do something. Because the king basically said, carte blanche, what do you want to do about this problem? He goes, I'd like to go fix it. And what we don't read is his willingness to next say exactly how that was going to work out. But basically, let me just impress upon you the power of Nehemiah being willing to walk away from the palace. What does that mean? Flashback to last week, he was willing to be uncomfortable. I mean, his job was sitting there on a comfortable couch waiting for the king to get thirsty so he could take a little sip of his Gatorade before the king played racquetball. I need to make sure this, this Gatorade's not poisonous. All right, Nehemiah, get up here. Mmm, that's blue raspberry. It's delicious. King, you go, go, go to town, right? And he's like, he waits for a second, like, uh, yeah, you're good. All right, I'm going to go play some racquetball. And that was Nehemiah's job. He could have stayed there indefinitely. Ah, oh, man, someone should do something about that city. Someone should, someone should really do something. I've got a real broken heart. He wasn't just emotional. He took action. He said, I'll leave the palace. I'll travel the 800 miles from modern day Iran to go to Jerusalem and be a part of it. He experienced unnecessary discomfort. And that's what it's going to take for us as well. We got to have our hearts broken for what breaks God's heart. And then we got to take action and be willing to be an answer to our own prayers. The second ingredient. The second area where there's tension is that there's got to be both plumbing and poetry. There's got to be both plumbing and poetry if a city is going to flourish. What do I mean by plumbing? When I say plumbing, I'm talking about, well, plumbing. I'm talking about the organizational network of pipes it's going to take to get hot water to a faucet that dispenses hot water, and cold water to a faucet that dispenses cold water, and wastewater away to where the wastewater needs to go. It's an incredible thing that we take for granted what it actually entails to have Plumbing in a building, to have plumbing in a city, wastewater, all that stuff. It's incredibly complex. It's a system. It's something that's been thought out. It involves water pressure and, and water treatment. It, it involves lots of different factors. And so it is in the story of Nehemiah. In fact, if you look at verse 17 of chapter 2, we see uh, Nehemiah said to them, you, are the tro- uh, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. So come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of God that was upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. And they began this good work. One translation they said, let us rise up and build. And I love that sentiment. Now, they weren't in that story responding to Nehemiah's plumbing. They were, in fact, responding to Nehemiah's other attribute. That's the tension now, his poetry. What he did was, was inspire them with vision. This is his version of the I have a dream speech. This is him, you know, really inspiring them with, with moving words that tugged their hearts, that caused them to stand up from where they were sitting and say, Yes, we want to be involved. Now, he could have talked about the fact that the king had given him permission to pull any tree from the king's forest and that the king had sent a conscript of bodyguards to, to keep after the work and to guard after the work. He could have talked about that the king gave him written permission and verification that all the T's were crossed and the I's were dotted, that he had pulled permits, essentially, for all this to take place. He could have shown them all the blueprints. He had all those things, and they were good and valid, but it was the poetry that moved the heart of the people. It was the vision. It was his appeal to history and the chance to rise up and fulfill their destiny. It's, which is it? Both. It takes plumbing and poetry for any great thing to get done. It takes a constant remembering of why we're doing this and why this matters and, 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 and what the, the, that will cause our hearts to burn. But also, it takes that poetry. It, it takes that plumbing, rather. It takes that system. It takes, it takes all of the things uh, needed for it to get practically done. involved in Nehemiah's plumbing is that he would eventually, when the walls were finished, have a system of relocation. He would ask for people to tithe people. We think about tithing money. He knew when the walls were done that people needed to go live inside, or it was just going to sit empty and sit vacant and never have that life. And people were happy to live in the suburbs where they were having it pretty good. But he said, no, I want some of you to have a vision enough to move in. So one out of 10 of you, a tithe of people who are going to be willing to come into the city. I think about how, over the years, we've tithed people. Think about how Every single time we've expanded and opened up other locations and, and, and done so, we've, we've done so by tithing people, taking people who are happy and connected and in community and say, hey, let's, let's have you go. Let's have you relocate over here to Billings. Let's have you relocate over here to Great Falls. I would love for you to not move to Kalispell, but to stay in Helena, because the time's going to come when you're going to start a watch party. I'm just saying, when there's a mentality that says, I'm willing to live here and fight for this part of the country to flourish where I could very well easily say, man, it'd be amazing to live over there. But instead, I'm going to be sent over here. That's a system. Nehemiah had a system of, of calling people to be inspired by poetry. But it all was according to this great grid of plumbing. Arnold Toynbee said, apathy can be overcome by enthusiasm. And enthusiasm can only be aroused by two things. First, an ideal, which takes the imagination by storm. And second, a def- definite intelligible plan for carrying that ideal into practice. So it's plumbing, and it's poetry. Nehemiah understood the right occasion for a speech and to pick up the quill pen. But he also knew practically there were other times when he didn't need the quill pen, he needed the plunger because you can't solve a plumbing problem with a quill pen. It just won't work. He knew when to be Bob the Builder, and he knew when to be William the Shakespeare. I mean, he just had both skills. It's, which is it? Which is important? In every organization, in every cause, it's both. And so as you think about how to grow your watch party, and, and maybe even some of you right now are feeling like, man, I watch this alone every week. I should start a watch party. It's vision. It's casting vision to people. Here's why. Here's what we should do. And, and then it's also the details. How much guacamole do we need? How many cinnamon rolls should we buy? Should we clean the house? It's, it's, it's the system, but it's also the vision. It's both and. It's emotion and action. It's plumbing and poetry. Third, it's immensity also met with responsibility. It's, it's, a, it's the idea of something so big. How are we ever going to do this thing? And many people, because it's too daunting, because it's, it's too big, it's because I don't see any way this can be done. You think about a problem so big, a city so big. How, do we, how are we going to tackle this? How are we going to ever do this? How do you do it? By every single person doing their responsibility, doing their part. One of the things that we always, across the years of our church and the Rock the City vision, have said is, how do you eat an elephant? And the answer is one bite at a time, one bite at a time. If you get a lot of people chewing, I know it's a disgusting analogy. Who would ever eat an elephant? But if you had enough people, one bite at a time, it could be done. Nehemiah 3, 28 through 32, look at this. I'm just, let's just run over a little recounting of how the work got done. Above the horse gate, the priest made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechemiah, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, next to him, you see it? Repaired another section. Next to them, next to them, opposite his living quarters. Next to him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple, opposite the inspection gate, and as far as the room above the corner. In the room above the corner. I love Nehemiah's plumbing, very detailed. And the merchants made repairs, and, and on and on we could go. The, the point is. 24 times in the book of Nehemiah, the phrase, next to them, is is used. Next to them, next to them, next to them. You see, the people were mobilized so that they understood, if I'm not doing my section of repair on this wall, there's going to be a great gap in the wall. And so everybody was working next to their friend, and next to their neighbor, and next to their neighbor. And if, if they all would view this as a shared responsibility, a lot could get done. And just so you understand, that big daunting project, which had been tried twice and was unsuccessfully completed in 141 years, under Nehemiah's vision and leadership, it was done in 52 days. A two and a half mile wide around circumference of a wall, 15 feet tall, big enough on top for there to be a parade marching on the top of it, was finished in 52 days by people who all had a mind to work and did so one next to the other. This responsibility of, I'm going to do my part. I'm going to chew my part. I'm going to do my part here. Just imagine what can be done. And I just wonder what, what God could do in our days as we now have this vision just multiplying out exponentially. And God is so shifting our church from being you know, a church with, oh yeah, Church Online also, to, man, this great ocean, this ocean of opportunity, of watch parties, and people all around the world mobilized with this vision, united by technology, all seeking the flourishing of the city where God has called us to live, growing, growing. What can happen if we have that spirit and have that heart and are gripped by it and then have the systems put in place for it to happen? I'm telling you, something immense can be done. Something impossible can be done. I believe that ear has not heard and eye has not seen what God has prepared for us in the coming days. I believe he is going to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond anything we could ask or think, according to his power, which works in us. Next to them, next to them, next to them. Sometimes we feel if we just look at our own self, if we look at our own portion of the wall, how could anything get done? I just know what I'm doing, one brick at a time, to one event at a time, one hour at a time. But like Mother Teresa said, anytime you're questioning whether you should you know, even put your drop in the ocean, because what is one drop in the ocean? Just remember the ocean without that drop in it has one drop less of water. And if we all are willing to be that drip, to be that drought, we will watch God raise the level, and a rising tide will lift all ships. I Also love that it says multiple times in the book of Nehemiah, each man worked in front of his own home. There was a section of the wall in front of their house they were assigned to work at. And I love that this year, for many of us, it's a different rock to city, because normally you might go across to an outreach group here or there, but if you can't physically get out of your house at this season, at this moment. We've put together ways at outreach.freshlife.church where you can make a difference right in front of your home, right in your home. There's things we can do serving God right there in front of our home. But our vision and heart is not to stay in our neighborhood. Because especially as we have discussed in this race issue of, of, of homogeneous neighborhoods, and oftentimes those who live in our neighborhoods are like us. Either in skin color or in uh, financial status. So, to think about and have a heart for neighborhoods where, where people are different than us and want to seek the flourishing, not just of people who are in our socioeconomic uh, group, but, but all across the spectrum of the city, wanting that flourishing to take place. All right, so immensity, the tension. It's a big thing, however, we know it, but the responsibility. We each do our part and we will watch something immense be done. And then, Fourthly and finally, leading and bleeding. I want to talk to you about that tension between the pain and and the privilege of of getting to serve, of getting to do great things, leading and bleeding. Chapter 4, no sooner than we had read this great list of all the construction efforts being done, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed, and he ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer their sacrifices? Will they finish it in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said whatever they are building, if even a fox climbed upon it, he would break down their wall of stones. And so begins what is a constant recurring theme to the book of Nehemiah, and that is people just showing up out of nowhere who inexplicably want to oppose this work that's being built, to do so by making fun of it, to do so by trying to demoralize those who are doing the work, to try to divide those who are doing the work, to antagonize, to even physically threaten to attack, smear campaign, distraction attempts, so many different things All the way to the end of the book, as the wall is rising, they're just trying their hardest to keep this work. Because some people don't want to build, and that's not enough for them. They also want to oppose anybody who does want to build. And that, you have to understand, is something you are going to reckon with if you're going to fight for your city to flourish. It is going to happen. It is not if it's when. Charles Swindoll said once, anyone who steps into the arena of leadership must be prepared to pay a price. True leadership exacts a heavy toll on the whole person. And the more effective the leadership, the higher the price. The leader must soon face the fact that he will be the target of critical darts. I would say he or she. Unpleasant though it may sound, you have not really led until you have become familiar with the stinging barbs of the critic. Good leaders must have thick skin. If you want to lead, you must be willing to bleed. Just ask Jesus. He said that you can't see that harvest come out of the ground if you're not willing to die like a seed going into the ground. And that really is what we see in Nehemiah. We never see him get bitter. We never see him, we see him mad, OK? But we never see him resorting to the same tactics of his, of his enemy. We don't see him throwing stones back. We, we see him praying. We see him even praying mad. But we, we see Nehemiah understanding what we need to understand, that it's par for the course if we are going to see our cities flourish. Now, I never gave you the title I probably should give you. I I wrote, I like to write titles for my talks. I don't even know if it's necessary. Jesus didn't do it. It's not like, this is my title, the Sermon on the Mount. Did you write that down? But I did did come up with a, a title, maybe even a little catchy title for this week. The title of this message I just gave you is this, Community Service is Not Punishment. And I want us to rethink it, because we live in a day when, quite literally, judges can sentence people to community service. You are in trouble. You have a debt to society. You must serve your community. Oh, for the day where a judge would say to someone, you are in trouble. You are not allowed to serve your community this week. No! That was a gavel, right? Because that should be our heart. If we understand truly what is at stake for us, not just that we get to bless people, but in that blessing, we receive blessing. In seeking the peace of the city, we get to receive that peace. If we really understood what happens when, like Nehemiah, we embrace discomfort and rise up to build, and rally people with poetry, and work hard at the plumbing, and are willing to feel the emotion, but also take action, if we're willing to do our part and shoulder our responsibility, and all together, next to each other, see something immense done, see something impossible done. If we're willing to fight to rock our city, we must be willing to bleed along the way. But our perspective will be that it's not a punishment to serve our community. It is an honor, and it is a privilege, and it is our call. Now, my favorite thing about the book of Nehemiah is the fact that as you look at him, you cannot help but see a picture of the Jesus that he was preparing the city of Jerusalem for. I told you that Nehemiah is the last chronological event. Nehemiah, Ezra, Esther, last chronologically of the Old Testament. And what were they doing as they readied the city of Jerusalem, as they readied the people? Even without perfectly understanding what they were doing, what they were doing was preparing the stump of Jesse for this root of David to show up out of it this root that would come from a stump. No one could could see new life come from a stump. When you see a stump, that's the show, folks. But to see new life spring from a stump, that's what's happening here. Jesus is this, this, this root that comes up out of this dead stump, seemingly forgotten. But now, this new life of the city being rebuilt and loved and flourished, it was all prepared so Jesus could come. And he's the ultimate Nehemiah. Jesus is the one who left the palace of heaven and was willing to come a lot further than 800 miles, to come to our Earth and take on skin and die not just for us, but die as one of us. And he did that for you. He did that for me. And we can be forgiven because of Jesus. And now we fight for our cities to flourish, not so Jesus could come, but because Jesus will come back. And we, to be agents of the cross and agents of reconciliation and fighting for cities to flourish, fighting for villages and towns and and Indian reservations alike to flourish, is because we know our King is coming. Our King will soon be here. And He wants us to be working as He returns for other people to flourish, just as He has made our hearts new. And so that heart, like Nehemiah, looking to the greater Nehemiah, We serve in our city in light of the coming kingdom that shall soon be all around us. And so, Father, we thank you. Thank you for what you've done for 10 years. Thank you for the next 10. May you, by 2030, have done something so immense and mysterious and supernatural among us that by the time we get there, we will have a hard time believing we ever thought that this last 10 years was something big because it is just so massive. And may we do so drop by drop. May you fill us with your spirit even now. And if you would say to me, Levi, in this moment of prayer, I embrace this call. I want to rise up and build. I want to, I want to be like Nehemiah. If you would say to me, I want to see my city flourish. I might even feel like I'm the only Christian in my, my city. You're clearly not. But you feel like, I don't know, I might be the only Christian in my neighborhood. You're probably not. But even if you were, if you would be willing to say to me, I want to fight for my city to flourish. I want to believe that community service is not punishment. Would you just raise up your hand as we're praying, saying, I want to rise up and build. I want to do this Nehemiah ministry. Raise your hand up. God, thank you for each. Thank you for this army strewn all across this world in this moment, embracing your call. May you fill us with your spirit and strength and not grow weary and not get tired, but to keep fighting. You could put your hands down. I want to give an invitation now for anybody watching and you've never given your heart to Jesus. And right now, he's standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking. This one who Nehemiah points to, who left the palace of heaven so you could be a part of his kingdom with life everlasting. He wants to forgive your sin, come into your heart. That's why he died for you on the cross. If you open your heart to him now, he'll come in. Right now, while we're praying, say this to him. Say, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I can't fix myself. Please come into my heart and make me new. I give myself to you. And right there in this prayer, with your head bowed, your eyes closed, if you just gave your heart to Jesus, let me ask you to just raise your hand up in the air. Raise it up right now. Raise it up. Raise it up. God sees your hand. He sees you. He sees you. He loves you. He knows you. Thank you, Jesus. Put your hand down. Put your hand down. Thank you, God. Come on, church, all across the church, let's celebrate with those making that decision this week. We are so for you and with you.